Hello, and welcome back to the Hidden Gems Movie Podcast. My name is Sam, and I am joined by my podcasting partner, co-worker, and friend, movie soulmate, Steve. How are you today? I'm doing fine on this dreary day. It's a middle January day. You haven't seen such a dreary day. Well, a dreary day is a good day to talk about <laughs> a... Oh, this way, Steve, we took a break for about a year, and... If we wanted to get all of our listeners back, and new listeners, this is not the way to do it. <laughs> um, because we chose hospital movies. Hospital movies. Movies that take place in hospitals. This is a hospital day. The weather is it's hospital weather. So I'm going to tell you what both movies are right now, guys, only because you understand why we're doing it in the order we're doing it in. The whole reason we're even doing hospital movies is that I watched a movie that Steve had been recommending for a long time, which is The Hospital, which is written by Patty Chayefsky. Um, and I loved it, and I just wanted to talk about it. And at the same time, I thought, okay, the only other hospital movie I can even think of is this made-for-TV HBO movie uh, based off a play starring the wonderful Emma Thompson from a long time ago called Wit. And let me tell you something. We cannot do the hospital after Wit, all right? <laughs> that would be like doing Schindler's List and then doing Police Academy 3. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's just not happening. However... Um, the last thing on Wit, if you guys want to see Wit, let me tell you something, HBO Max does not want you to see that movie, because if you type in the title of the movie in full, Wit, W-I-T, that movie will not come up. Is like, that right? That is right. A bunch of, the John Wick 1 through 10 will come oh. up. <laughs> A bunch of other movies that are not Wit will come up. You know what that means is, more people have mistaken John Wick and typed in Wick, yeah. uh, as, accidentally typed in W-I-T, than, than have actually searched the movie. Yeah, I actually had to go to movies A through Z and then scroll <laughs> down to find Wit. I was, like, I was like, is Wit not even on this site anymore? It is. HBO just has no faith in the movie. They can't mm. believe that anybody would want to see this movie. Like, but let's enough about wit. We'll talk about that later. Steve, let's start off on the hospital. Let's let's start off. All right. So I'll be honest. Um, all right, I'll do the summary first. I'll do the summary first. The hospital is a dark comedy. I won't get into the the real plot elements yet. I'll just say the hospital is a dark comedy about a guy played by George C. Scott, who I think is one of my top five favorite actors ever. He's essentially the head of the hospital. He runs the hospital. He's the top doctor. And he's also uh, depressed suicidal um, for whatever the reasons. What, what do they call the French call it? Like, he's ennui, right? Like, he just... Life I'm no, not familiar with that. I'm not familiar ennui, with Ennui, maybe. It's just oh. like life no longer appeals oh. to him. He's... Oh. I think he just got divorced. He's in a yes. loveless marriage. Um, and... A series of what are essentially uh, misbegotten murders start happening in the hospital. They really turn it around for him. Um, <laughs> How's that for irony? Yeah, no. So this is a dark comedy. It's written by Patty Chayefsky. My only real experience with Patty Chayefsky is actually um, Network. Uh -huh. um, that yawn you guys just heard is Steve's dog who's, cuzzling, who's snuggling up next to me and well <laughs> worth it. Um, this isn't a boring show. Don't don't take yeah. that. Uh, Maggie's a terrible movie critic. So, so Patty Chayefsky wrote wrote this film, and I, I don't really have any experience with Patty Chayefsky beyond Network. In fact, I always thought for years Patty Chayefsky was that other Patty who got like Patty Hearst who got like held <laughs> hostage, and then like I guess like 
identified with her hostage, like her, her, <laughs> the people who took her hostage. Does that sound about right? That's right, because in Network, they have a Patty, uh, Patty yeah. Hearst kind of yeah. uh, Siboney's liberation. Yeah. I, mean, I think they, they, I think they do, it. right. Yeah. So the, yeah. the whole thing always confused me. Um, there's so many interesting things about the hospital. And in some ways, the most interesting things, and I hate to, to do it, but are the things you can't do today. I mean, there's a real discussion about what is possible today with a movie like this. I don't think this movie is possible today. Um, you know, you got this guy, George C. Scott. He is, in the beginning of the film, incredibly suicidal. He's depressed. In fact, he's planning on committing suicide the night like that he goes into work. Um, but at the same time, a bunch of hospital staff members, like doctors and nurses, are like accidentally dying. And it becomes revealed at some point throughout the film that they're actually being murdered. The, these these accidental deaths are actually being they're being staged as accidental deaths, but someone's actually murdering these hospital staff members. And in the meantime, um, George C. Scott meets this beautiful young woman who's actually the Bond girl in a great Bond movie, Her Majesty's Secret Service. What's Diana her name? Rigg. What's her name? Diana Rigg. Diana Rigg. She was also, for you Game of Thrones fans, yeah. she was uh, the woman from, I don't know any of these people's names. Uh, all right, spoiler alert, but she's the woman that killed King Joffrey in Game of Thrones. <laughs> she's, she's the woman that poisoned him. If you haven't seen that by now, you know, too bad. And she's like this free-spirited... She's a great actress. Yeah, she's great. She was most... Probably her, her biggest fame was a British series of, of The Avengers. Mm -hmm. It was kind of a Bondish oh. takeoff. Huge hit and very successful in America. Extremely successful in America. <laughs> so she... um Basically, he meets her. She's the daughter of a very renowned doctor who actually happens to be sick and is staying in the hospital. She's kind of a kook. Um, she's got like a, what is it, like an African witch doctor or something. She's got like some shaman. <laughs> or Native type. American, I think a Native American yeah. Yeah, sh shaman, yeah. She's got some, I think some indigenous South American shaman like doing ritual prayers over her father's body. And she intends to take her father back. Which country is it, Steve? Mexico. To, is it just Mexico? Just Mexico, But it's, yeah. it's like, but it's not like the the society in Mexico. It's oh yeah, it's yeah. it's uh, it's some out in the countryside mountainous yes. village yes. that she intends to take her father back to, where they provide uh, free medical care for the indigenous people of this of this small village, which is you know quite admirable. But she's a bit of a kook. Now, Georgie Scott falls in love with her, right? And this is sort of what starts to turn it around for him. And this is the part. I mean, you can't get into I think five minutes of talking about this movie. Before you talk about the scene where they essentially really meet and talk for the first time. So she's in the hospital attending to her dad. And she walks in on George C. Scott attempting suicide, basically. No, excuse me. I've got that wrong. She, he's talking to her first. I think, yeah, I think they meet right. first. They're, they're being introduced. Right. And but no, no, to... but he's also having a drink. At one point, he's getting drunk late at night. He's like, he, for some reason, he finds himself in the same office as her. Yeah. And he's going on and on about, you know, just how depressed he is, how miserable he is, what a loveless marriage he was in, you know, how his life's going nowhere, and that he's probably thinking about killing himself. And meanwhile, she's talking about her fancy free life, you know, free of modern society in South America, in Mexico, excuse me. And she leaves the room. 
And then she comes back in the room later because she forgot something. And when she comes back in the room, she witnesses George C. Scott attempting suicide. I mean, this is sort of in many ways the catalyst of the movie. And he, he you know, he's got. I think he's trying to commit suicide with insulin or something. He's he, he's got a needle in his arm. Do you remember this, Steve? Yeah. What was? It? I think it's yeah. Uh, it might have been insulin or potassium or excess, yeah, it, it's, excessive potassium. It's something some drug that he actually tells yeah. a psychiatrist that if he was going to kill himself, this is what he would use. Yeah, the the, the hospital uh, shrink. I think right. Yeah. The hospital shrink. Yeah, um, yeah. And when she walks in and catches him committing suicide, he decides to rape her, and she decides to enjoy it. And the problem is, at first I wasn't sure. I was like, is that rape? Like, Not like, oh, is it rape because she enjoyed it. I literally watching the scene was like, I can't tell what's going on. Like, is he raping her? And then, in case it was vague at all, Patty Chayefsky decides to have Georgie Scott's character say, the very next morning, I raped you. She never says it. She never says it. He does. Right. But this is tough. I don't know. And maybe for good reason too, right? Mm-hmm. I am, you know, I am like, I'm, I'm about the art, you know. Good people make mistakes. Right. Bad people can be the main characters of movies. In no way in the 21st century, and maybe, and I'm not saying this like, oh, you can't do anything now, but maybe with good cause, could you make the hero of your movie a sympathetic character, also guilty of rape in like the first 25 mm-hmm. minutes? No, not not if you wanted to get an audience or if you wanted to go to a restaurant. If you're the writer and you want to go to a restaurant anywhere yeah. in this country, no, you couldn't. Uh, it, it's kind of problematic because yeah. up until then, and maybe for a few years more, you could have a rape. In Gone with the Wind, they have a, uh, they have a rape. Really? I don't remember that. Oh, yeah. Clark Gable takes um uh, Vivian Lee up to her, up in her, up, up in her, in her hands. Yeah. You know, I won't be turned out tonight. Takes that long walk up the stairs and rapes her. You don't see, obviously, you don't Holy see the rape. Smokes. Yeah. The next morning, she's humming with a smile on her face, which is absolutely the most, uh, yeah. you know, it's ridiculous. Some people would say horrifying, yeah. you know, instead of her being traumatized. But <clears throat> here's the problem. Yeah. Even e- if you want to get to the truth, okay? Yeah. Is it possible for a woman to say, you know, I don't want, I, I don't want to have sex with you? The guy takes charge, brings her upstairs, and it still turn out okay. I don't know. All you I know? know is that Patty Chayefsky. Don't believe. Don't don't get me wrong. Yeah. No means no. Yeah. Right. Raping is awful. Yeah. And it was a slap in the face when I heard him say that, and it's a yeah. kind of a slap in the face and gone with the wind when she's just smiling instead of you know pl- plotting to have him. It was also so Kill. unnecessary. It was. You're it was absolutely so right. completely unnecessary. It's like like the only way he finds his virility yeah. is raping her. We <laughs> I know it sounds like we're condemning this movie rather than um uh than praising it. it, it in in its context, it just looks like he she brings out in him anger and virility. And I think she feels that that's sort of an accomplishment, you know? Yeah, because this rape essentially turns and, his attitude around. Oh, yeah. He, he, he suddenly has hope. Right. Not advocating rape but as a way of getting he hope. he thinks it's rape. Yes. I mean, that's the craziest thing about it. It's not that she thinks it's rape and he doesn't. This is not a guy. This is a guy who's very self-aware. Yeah. He has ripped himself apart in several monologues up yeah. till this point. Okay. Yeah. By the way, this movie's a comedy. Yes. <laughs> a rather zany Comedy, one. Uh, yeah. 
comedy, dark satire. Yeah. Very much in the spirit of, of Network. Very much in the spirit Zanier of Network. than Network, though. Zany, yeah. With, with one key. Well, it, it has its own. It's, it has a zanier Howard Beale. <laughs> it never gets close to the heights of Network. Maybe the first 10 minutes it does. Mm-hmm. But then things happen later in the movie that kind of derail it, which the movie was criticized for, and I, I understand why. I kind of think this is kind of a template for for, for um, uh, uh, Network because you have the crazy, insane, and sometimes right yeah. uh, uh, prophet. Mm-hmm. You know, the crazy prophet who, who decides. I guess it's up to you whether we should uh, reveal. No, we won't reveal it. We okay. won't reveal it because I have a feeling anyone listening to this probably has not seen this movie. Um, but what I will say is that the issue with the rape, I got a dog. You want to talk about rape? I got a dog <laughs> all over me, just like trying to just put her tongue in my mouth. Um, she's a very loving yeah. dog. <laughs> no, this fine. is not born out of a need to uh, find her virility. So basically, you know, I think about that movie Straw Dogs, which has a problematic <laughs> rape scene in which Dustin Hoffman's wife is raped. But the problem is, and she's enjoying it, which is problematic. Yeah. But the but what's the thing is that the people that are raping her are quite clearly the villains. Yeah. Um, I have seen, whether it's Al Swearingen, Tony Soprano, um, I have seen, you know, m- um, complex, dark characters. But the problem is this movie is not giving you one of those anti-heroes. He's the hero. He's mm-hmm. the hero of the film. He's worse than that. He's the moral center of the film. So why does he do it? Why does he... What's his, What's the reason he decides to, in his mind anyway, even if she doesn't consider yeah. it necessarily a rape, um, why does he do it? I think he. I think he does it. He, he out of anger. Yeah. He's ang- He's frustrated with the hospital. He's angry with it. But he. He also got taken down a couple of pegs because she seems to have his number. Yeah. She describes his his uh, impotent fury. Yeah. Um, she says she's, you know, she's not impressed with, with his cynicism, yeah. you know, and it's, it's really made him angry. Like she's right. not taking his, his, his despair seriously. Here's what I'll say. This is one of the few times where if you say to me, you know, Sam, I can't, I either I watch this movie and I couldn't get past it or I won't watch this movie because I know about this already. I would say, okay. Yeah. It's I would very say, understandable. I would say it's completely understandable because it is a flaw. It's a flaw in the movie, and a major one. And, it, and I'm normally, you know, I, I saw this movie Tar the other day, which just came out, and there's a, a great scene in the movie where um, she's giving a lecture. She's a composer, the main character of that film, and she's giving a lecture at Juilliard, like a guest lecture, and she's talking to this student who is African-American and also identifies as... Whatever it is when you identify as having both genders, I don't mean to be dismissive. I actually don't know. I don't remember what non-binary. It. No, because that's no gender. Oh right, and right, this right. This is the opposite. He identifies as both hermaphrodite. He, no, that no, means? that's definitely not what that is. That's um, when you have both genitals. Yeah, right? no, he's just identifying. Oh, okay, yeah. okay. But the point is that she asks him if he likes Bach, and he says, "No, I'm not into those cisgendered white males." And she says, "You know, that's so ridiculous." Like. You're, you know, you're, you're small, you're, it's so, it's so ridiculous that your small differences obscure, like, genius work, you know, blah, 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 but, so normally a lot of times when I have an issue with someone's moral objection to a film, I generally almost always have any, an issue with anyone morally objecting to a movie, because movies are not here to more, to reinforce your morality. That being said, 
in this movie I understand because the rape it's it's not consistent. It doesn't fit. It doesn't fit with how they're presenting the character. Yeah, you don't think that he would he, yeah. <clears throat> he would he would rape her. You could be morally <clears throat> appalled by what he does and not watch it. And I understand that. In some ways I I dislike the inconsistency in storytelling. It, it's it, the storytelling behind it is inconsistent. It's not logical. Mm-hmm. It's just there were so many ways around this, and I'm not sure why Patty did it. Yeah. It, it, does, it. The one argument you can have is it, it implies that uh, you know the only way for a man to to find his manhood is yeah. to rape a woman, which is absolutely yeah. which is barbaric. Uh, but is that what the that's the surface look at this? Yeah. Is there is there a deeper truth? Did they did they have a connection that he decided to label rape at the end? Again, she What's never worse calls is that he rape. seems impressed with himself. He said, "No, I, I disagree. He he feels guilty." Oh, you think he felt twice guilty? when he mentions it? You know, uh, the next morning, a la you know Scarlett O'Hara, she proclaims that she's in love with the guy. Yeah, it's uh, in in no time at all. Yeah, which it's, is it's, it's a little... so problematic. <clears throat> and all I want to say is the reason. You know, we're going on about this. It would be impossible if I didn't, if we didn't tackle this part of the movie head on mm. right away for a movie we both really like, people would be like, what are you thinking? Like, how could you go over that? Right. But also, it, it is something, it is, it's a major flaw in an otherwise great movie. Um, and that's what I want to get into. So, like, I'm not sure that I can even call it a flaw if, if I consider all the dimensions. For example, I don't think it's a flaw if if you feel like she wasn't raped, mm-hmm. but his guilt and his, his after years of impotence, his final aggression, he considers his 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 um you know forwardness and aggression rape. Yeah. Then I, I maybe the, maybe he's getting to a truth. <clears throat> that is the only way to yeah. to read it to make it make any sense. Because like I said, when I was watching it, right when he, he, when he, they're actually having sex, I wasn't sure if it was rape. It, it didn't. It, it doesn't seem like right rape. Away. It didn't strike. I mean, I wouldn't until know, he look, says it the following. Never morning. raped anyone. I never seen yeah. one raped. It just, you know, I'm, I, I don't want to be the person who defines what rape yeah. is, right? I just, I just yeah. wasn't sure. Right? And it could have been. I mean, it, she. We don't know because yeah. we, we just the camera just focuses on him. She, she could, she could have been cowering in in fear. But as it turns out, obviously, the only way to, she's not. The only way yeah. to even make it make sense is that if he thinks it's rape and it actually wasn't. It's the only way to even make it make sense, yeah, yeah. in my opinion. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense. I think it was unnecessary. But that being said, I want to talk about the movie a little bit, right? Because this movie is really, really good, and it has an unbelievably good opening, like a good opening ten minutes. You know, it's got this kind of pre-Wes Anderson tongue-in-cheek <laughs> narration to describe the hospital system that is hilarious. It's just like unbelievable where it's basically this guy's narrating how this one doctor who while on one of his breaks is trying to screw one of the nurses <laughs> and is found dead the next morning. Um, the movie, the movie is really what it's trying to do is it's trying to show the flaws in the hospital system and it's doing it through comedy, right? How, how the the hospital system is just like, you know, it's just full of mistakes. It's full of inhumane mistakes. And we're we're really we're tackling two movies that essentially deal with the medical system itself, the medical care system. What I will say is that the critique of hospitals making mistakes is probably a less justifiable critique because 
institutions, whether they be hospitals or governments, are just people. I hate the word institution. I don't believe mm-hmm. in it. There's no such thing. You just have a building where a bunch of people are working, right? And people are just people. They I believe make, in institutions. I, I believe in them as a function. Uh, right. I just mean in terms but of even like, the trappings. The trappings have some benefit. No, you I know, like institutions. The trappings of, of authority. Yeah. Comfort. Um, you know, uh, uh, trying to people make people feel yeah. just a little bit better. The visual signifiers you see around a hospital may give you comfort, although not in this hospital. Yeah, <laughs> not in this hospital. But I think it's every hospital. But the, but the thing is, like, when we talk about institutions, we never expect them to make mistakes. Yeah. That's the thing. Like, that's why I was talking about institutions. It's just people. Right. Institutions are just people. It's just essentially a company of some kind, whether it be public or private, that's been around for so long that we call it an institution. But it's just people, and we always get angrier at institutions making mistakes than just like your average Amazon company. And at some point, Amazon will be an institution. <laughs> it right? brings out the, the, <laughs> the Yahoo hick in everybody to say, you know, th- those damn people at the insurance company, they're, they're yeah. rotten. Those damn people at the hospital, they're rotten. All politicians right. are evil. Yeah. It, it, it's a shortcut, you yeah. know, but it doesn't really strike at the, at the heart of the problem, I don't think. So I think I first, the first time I ever became aware about this movie, Steve, was actually when I was coming to your house to do the podcast, and you were watching the scene right before he rapes her, where he's doing the long monologue about how he has screwed up his life, mm. screwed up his children. I mean, when did you first hear about this movie? What drew you to it? What did you like about it? This movie almost completely disappeared despite a huge star. Remember, George C. Scott was coming off the success of Patton. Mm-hmm. A, he had already been an Academy Award-winning uh, screenwriter, Patty Chayefsky. You know. Oh, this is post-network. This is before network, but it's after Marty. Oh, he won the Oscar for Marty? Yes. Wow. He, he, he's, he won the Oscar for The Hospital, too. Oh. That's in my... That's in my uh... Does he have three Oscars? <laughs> he has three... Oscars surpassed, I believe, only by Woody Allen. Wow. Woody yeah. Allen is... Well, but were they all for writing for Woody Allen, or was one for directing? No, uh, I'm just talking about screenplay writing. Yeah. He and um, and Billy Wilder, I think, have three uh, three best screenplay Oscars. I think uh, Allen has four. People are impressed, really impressed, for the screenplay of the ho- hospital for the exact opposite reason they were impressed for Marty. Because Marty has this, you know... This you know, uh, is lower middle class vernacular. You know, for uh, you know, he, this is how they speak. You know, and yeah. and, it, and he expresses everything through kind of very uh, not illiterate but semi literate expressions. And Whereas Marty's this movie, sappy. this movie is. Well, I, I don't. I, I don't think it's. I don't think it's, it's sappy, shocking but that it's a Patty. It's, it's very film. emotional. Yeah, it's, it's very it's, emotional. It's it's out of brand. For what it's we completely know. different. Yeah, it's the yeah. exact opposite of this, which is. Yeah. Almost overly literate, yeah. like Network, right? And and is savagely cynical, yeah. like Network, <laughs> right? 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 So like, so when you watch, where, where did you watch me for the first time? Well, I can't. I can't remember. It's, it was it, it was years before when I when you saw it when you mm-hmm. watched me watching yeah. it. That had been the second time because I hadn't seen it in like twenty years. But that movie almost, I think it almost completely disappeared after it was released. Yeah, because you never hear about it. Yeah, you know. You know. So watching The Hospital and then watching um, Tar, like I brought up earlier, you know, almost back to back, and then right before watching either of these movies, watching uh, The Fablemans, and it's just, we are missing something in writing now, which is affecting Mm. movies across the board. A type of adult language that isn't Aaron Sorkin, right? It's like... 
just like more writers with a real ability to write adult language. I don't mean bad words. I don't mean curse words. I mean this this type of highly literate, highly intellectual language instead of what we're getting now. Like, you know, the Fablemans might clean up at the Oscars and it's it's childish simpleton nonsense. Its script could have been written by a college student, maybe even a high school student. It might be even a, a it might be disrespectful to high school and college <laughs> screenwriters who may actually have some talent. Um, I have not seen the Fablemans. Okay, um, I, I just don't have the strength to, to see it. I feel like I I would come away demoralized. Yeah, because the trajectory of Spielberg has has not been what I you know. Well, he hoped. tried to be prestigious. Yeah, as soon as he started, you know, sniffing Oscar blood, uh, he just something. Not as soon because he has made some prestigious movies that I very much admire. I don't know if you do. I very much admire Schindler's List. I very, very much admire Saving Private Ryan. But something happened at the turn of the century. Saving Private Ryan. I rewatched it recently. Mm-hmm. Is so bad. I can't oh, believe it's not people like that movie. It has no story. It has no characters. The opening ten minutes are some of the most jingoistic, nonsense, jingoistic. Yeah, nonsense patriotic horseshit I've ever seen. The walk to the cemetery is one of the just the dumbest scenes. Oh, that. Yeah, yeah. The beginning oh. of the movie. It's and the, oh, you mean before they get to the flashback? Before they get to D Day. Yeah, oh my god. There's just so much wrong with that movie. And then um I think Schindler's List, look, it's not art. It is it's recreation. All right, you want to show people what the Holocaust looked like if you were there. Okay. The reason I think you're wrong on Schindler's List, and we're getting way off yeah, all the way off base. So the reason I think you're wrong is uh the Liam Neeson character, you know. And maybe this a movie about um, you know, yeah. The tragedy against Jews yeah. probably should not be focusing on a Christian, but it's yeah. it's its art is derived from you know how a complacent, a morally complacent man is is stirred out of it. You know. So to bring it back to the hospital, yes. the reason I bring this up is that when I get on Netflix, there's a category that they have for me. They they made it. They they adjust it to my taste, and it's called cerebral films. All right. And when I go through that list of movies, <laughs> they're all over 20 years old. They're all Oh, interesting. Over, that's the point. So you actually respect the list. I like the I, list. I was thinking you were going to set me up with, uh, this no, is what they consider no, cerebral? No, oh, okay. no. They do have stuff for that, though. It's like award-winning films. And do you songs. think Sorkin is like Ursatz uh, Patty Chayefsky? Like he's, you know. He's Patty Chayefsky. I was going to say on cocaine, but for all we know, Patty Chayefsky was also on cocaine. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. He's the... He actually, he's a type of guy, he's a type of writer that Patty Chayefsky would make fun of. Does that make sense? Yeah. He yeah. is a Howard Beale type writer in that sense. Like, Patty Chayefsky would sab, he would write about a writer who thinks that they're making groundbreaking, transformative political work. You know what I mean? Where they yeah. write a script and they say, this script is going to change the world. If, if Patty Chayefsky were still alive today... He one of his targets would definitely be the movie industry. Yeah, but the point is, you know, watching it, the language is cerebral. The film is cerebral, yes. even though it turns into a zany, bonkers comedy. I mean, I just <laughs> there's no way around this. This movie is firing on all cylinders for like the first three quarters, including the rape scene, which is obviously a mistake. But even the craft is still there. And then also in the last quarter of the movie, it almost becomes 
you know, National Lampoon, it gets pretty zany. I don't want to give the ending away, Steve, but what do you think about the last 25 minutes of that movie, which has been criticized? It's funny, too, because, yeah, what it introduces is the the kind of absurdity he would get, um, he would explore more in in Network. I think it's zanier than Network. Maybe he felt, oh, yeah, I I agree with that, and he's playing it more for laughs than Beale. Yeah, uh, the meal was, but they're they're both very similar characters, and they they both want to expose, uh, you know, how horrible the um, you know, the hospital system is. I think at one time one character says, "Well, you know, I wanted to I want an hour to myself." Mm-hmm. He said, "I, I pressed the uh, bur- the the, the nurse uh, alarm. Why yeah. did you do that? Because I wanted a complete one hour." Uninterrupted. Yeah, right. <laughs> you right, know. Yeah. He's taking a shot at it. But there's more to this because this movie wouldn't be quite the bite it would be if it if it didn't kind of apply to society in general. You know, physical gag comedy in the end. I mean, it turns into like a zany madhouse. I mean, just imagine like people's heads going through windows. Uh-huh. Like it kind of turns into Animal House at the end. <laughs> it just it loses some of its sharpness. It gets very, it gets very frenetic. Yes. Yeah. It get it gets frenetic yes. to the point that I think it loses some of its prestigious luster, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Um, let's talk about George C. Scott for a second, because we we don't get enough opportunities to talk about George C. Scott. There are two actors from that era that I think in this era don't get their shine anymore. Like people don't really remember them too much. Mm. It's George C. Scott. And to a much greater degree in terms of not being remembered. Um, who's the who's the guy, the bad guy from On the Waterfront? Oh, Lee J. Cobb. And Lee J. Cobb. Oh. Man, these two actors, when men were men. You know what I mean? <laughs> when, a, when a middle-aged man could look like a middle-aged man yeah. instead of looking like Tom Cruise. Yes. I mean, Tom Cruise is in his late 50s. What, what, what Anthony... What, uh, Anthony... Um, uh, I forget what his name is. He was in uh, Zorba the Greek. Oh, uh, you're talking about the guy from Lawrence of Arabia? Yeah. What is his name? Anthony, oh my, I'm so ashamed that I can't remember his name. because Anthony Quinn. Anthony Quinn. He, he once complained about leading men in the 90s, because uh, that's how long he lived. No, no, man, no one has a gut. They yeah, don't have right. a man's figure. Yeah, you know? <laughs> that's right. I mean, I remember, I think it was my mom who was saying this not long ago. I don't know what movie it was, but it took place in the 50s. And she said, none of these look like men from the 50s. It's just like, they're just way too effete, way too pretty. They just, and my mom grew up in the 50s. They spend too much time in the gym and with their dietician. They just didn't look like, they just didn't look like men of the 50s. Now, Scott. Yeah. Back to Scott. There are some moments that I, I really love in this movie with him. But just like Serpico with Al Pacino, there are some scenes that kind of hint to some future bad acting habits. How dare you? Yes. Uh, sort of going over the top, <laughs> growling his lines, which you, you take a look at the 70s, and he, he gets increasingly angry with each year, with each, with each uh, passing year. After this movie, anything he does doesn't count. We're well <laughs> past the peak of his career. I mean, essentially after this movie, you might as well consider his career to be like the meet the Fockers phase, right? Like the, the late oh, Robert De Niro phase. Like what did, what did he really do after this movie? He made a movie with Mike Nichols, the director of our uh, second movie. Yeah. Wit. De La Dolphin. Never even heard of it. You never heard of it. It was such a big deal when it came out. Uh, Everybody. So can g- it be a hidden gem? If, 
if no one's heard of it today? I'm not sure it's good enough to be a hidden gem, but it was interesting. Okay. People people thought it was interesting. George C. Scott plays this this um, uh, 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 guy who deals with dolphins, a yeah. scientist deals with dolphins, ichthymologist. I don't know. And they learn. He teaches them to to think and talk and speak. All right, let me list the things I love about George C. Scott because uh-huh. I love this man. Yeah. One, he's in the Hustler. He plays one of my favorite characters of all time in my all time favorite movie. I should be kicked off this this podcast because I've never seen the Hustler. Oh, really? Yes. Whoa. I know. I, I mean, I've told you The Hustler's my favorite movie, yes. right? Yes. And, and you still haven't seen it. Still haven't seen it. Oh, dude, there's see something... It this, see it this week. There's something so dreary about... And, and I might be wrong. Is, I might be totally wrong, but there's something that seems so relentlessly dreary about the movie that I... It is, yeah, for sure. 100%. <laughs> but it's also pure art. Who it, directed that? Was it Richard Brooks? Who, I, who directed that? You know, it's so movie? funny. My favorite movie, I don't know who directed yeah. it. Um, that being said, that movie has everything I like. Mm-hmm. It's, first of all, it has sports. I love sports movies. Okay, and because it has, yeah, pool, you're, pres- you're, you're pushing the definition of sports. Or... I mean, it, <laughs> look, if golf gets to be is, a sport, is darts or is darts a sport? Is, I don't know. Is golf a sport? <laughs> yes. Then then pools a sport. All right, I'll give I'll give it to you. It, it has everything, <laughs> but it, it's got George C. Scott is amazing. Now I'll keep yeah. pointing on the list. Patton. Patton is one of the all time enjoyable movies. You're right. With one of the all time enjoyable performances. You're right. He's in Doctor Strange Love. One of the all-time <laughs> enjoyable performances yes. and one of the all-time enjoyable movies. He's in this movie, which is, he's fantastic and it's a great movie. And then, maybe the greatest thing he's ever done. The reason he doesn't accept his Oscar for Patton, the reason he does not go <laughs> on the record, is he declares the Academy Awards a meat parade. <laughs> I mean, this guy. He did this the year before, uh, I'm sorry, two years before Brando declined his oscar for some you know but he did it way better than brando oh yeah because brando sent a fake native yeah. american yes. to the oscars i mean that was <laughs> well he did it he, he thought well you know what maybe we shouldn't be in the in the business of competing against each other it's supposed to be our and he said later you know i wish i hadn't done it i wish i had just quietly you know because yeah. he wasn't after publicity unlike brando yeah and then i in some of my research on uh, on Scott, who I love, I come across this this YouTube video of him in what is quite clearly a very last appearance in the very late stages of the Johnny Carson Tonight Show, and these are just two old men with what? massive lapels or like collars, <laughs> massive collars, and Scott is just sitting on that couch smoking a cigarette on live TV. <laughs> Just being a star from the 50s. Isn't that cool? Isn't that so cool? Like in the late 80s, early 90s. Like he just represents a type of, you know what he is? The the last actor to represent that mold is Gene Hackman. And Gene Hackman's retired. He retired way way too early. We call Gene Hackman a type, right? I'm pretty sure Hollywood calls Gene Hackman a type. They're probably like, give me a Gene Hackman type. But it used to be that type. We're just called actors. (laughs) Right, they were just male actors, and now if you want like a middle-aged man who looks like a man who looks like how most of us look, yes, right, we call them a Gene Hackman type because yeah. otherwise it's you know it's Tom Cruise, you know Steve Tom Cruise was the same age in Top Gun that Paul Newman was in The Verdict. Oh, you mean uh, uh, Top Gun Maverick? Yes, Top oh. Gun Maverick. And <laughs> that's the something. The same agent. I mean, it's just it's just getting ridiculous. It's getting yeah. laughable. Um, yeah. I loved I loved Top Gun Maverick. I saw it in high. And it was fantastic. But there is something a little chilling about a guy. 
a guy who is pushing 60, you know, yeah. looking like he's 40. You know what would have made Top Gun Maverick better? If he had been 60. Like, or if he'd been 58 and, like, mm-hmm. had gray hair yeah. and just went out one last time to show the kids. Instead, he's just, like, a hot shot the whole way through. A lot of actors do that. A lot of actors try to pretend they're younger than they are and they, they can still get it up as yeah. far as as far as movies. And uh, they usually come off pathetically. Cruz does pull it off, but he's going to have to find that bridge. He's going to have to find that bridging mo- movie yeah. where he becomes the father-like guy instead of the, yeah. the star. There's so much we haven't explored about um, yeah, the hosp- about the, the hospital. hospital. The look. The look of the movie. Okay. Quintessentially early 70s yeah. movie. It's gritty. Yep. It wants to be... It's not a slice of life movie, but it wants to look like it. It goes too too far beyond, too, too absurd. But it's taking that slice of life uh, down gritty New York stuff. The, the, the kind of stuff that we saw on um, you know the taking of the Pelham 1, 2, 3. Yep. And you you don't want to rub up against any of the walls in this hospital. It makes it's I was gonna say it as makes hell. a New York City hospital look like one of the absolute worst places you can be on Earth. Yeah, which by the way is what it's supposed to be in this movie. It's supposed to be one of the <laughs> worst places you can be on Earth. They, yeah, and they they say that this movie it was actually shot in a Manhattan hospital mm-hmm. on the uh, like two floors that were not being occupied at the moment. Yeah, a working a working hospital. It looks it and. Back in the early seventies, you had um, all New York City was going through all kinds of of horrible things with garbage strikes, with garbage mm-hmm. being piled up. This is human pe- people human being treated like garbage. Well, they're being human- treated like garbage. They're being, yeah, they're being right. packed in and stacked up, yeah. and and they're literally dying to be seen. Which is kind of what's so absurbic yeah. about it because the the irony is the one guy who dies while waiting was a uh, callous. Uh, uh, incompetent doctor. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to give away the 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 mystery, the the, the you know how they right, solve right, the mystery. Sure. But what I do want to ask you, Ray, is so you know, George C. Scott, he's working in this miserable hospital. He's trying to make it work, and then he's given an out by this beautiful young woman who says, "Come away with me to to Mexico, where you can be a real medical practitioner and help people and get away from all this." And he agrees to do it. And then at the very last second, this I will spoil. He decides not to. He decides to stay with the hospital because he feels a sense of responsibility towards it. And you know what? It's not a spoiler because I think most people will see that coming. How do you he take it? He can't this? leave. He can't so leave. So how do you take it? I mean, I guess my question is, does he do the right thing? There's some people who thought it, it kind of diminished the, the movie, turning him into the saint who stays, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the good, strong, not Yankee values, but at least Manhattan values, the, 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 you know the strength stays to to fight the good fight. Yeah. Um, there, it's another thing that's kind of problematic. He's fighting um, a bunch of a group of African American uh, citizens. Yeah. Who are very angry? The hospital is trying to take over a nearby neighborhood to install a brand new section of the hospital. Yeah. And the, the African Americans really aren't viewed very very well. They're not viewed terribly sympathetically. No. You know. They're not saying that the hospital is right for doing it, but it's just one more um, point of pressure putting on Scott and his shoulders. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's just, I don't know if what he did was right or wrong, but I'll tell you something. I wouldn't have done it. <laughs> You'd have gone off with, uh, well, who wouldn't have gone off? You, you could say it's, it's, it's so unrealistic because uh, Diane, uh, Diane Rigg, she's this beautiful, free spirit. Yeah. She, she's gorgeous. She's accepting. 
she falls in love with this guy right away, whether he raped her or not. Yeah, she, there's something about him that that, that impresses her. All I can think to myself is she's like, a nurse too. As, as a matter, yeah, she's yeah, actually she a nurse. nurse. You yeah, know, she just, knows what's going on. He just screwed up his life. He had a chance to get out. He just screwed up. I don't know. This is this is an interesting film. It's a smart film. It's a flawed film, but it's definitely a film worth seeing. And if you decide you can't get past the moral quandary of what he does, I get it. I get it. This is one of the there are people who I guess could rightfully be traumatized by the scene. Yeah, and, and should I, stay I, away I from totally it. understand just someone being like. This is not a complex Tony Soprano type character. He's the hero, and he's also guilty of rape. Yeah, and I, I understand the contradiction there, and I'm, I'm totally fine if if nobody wants to, uh, if someone doesn't want to see it because of that. It, at the very least, the storytelling logic doesn't make sense unless we take it back to what we said before. All right, Steve, do you have a bad pitch for this movie? I have a bad pitch before before I want to get into this. Yeah, we haven't mentioned the director. The director is Arthur oh, okay. Hiller. Yeah. Who I always considered the quintessential mediocrity. Okay. You know, I've got a list of movies he made before the hospital. All right. Okay. Okay, he made the Out of Towners. Kind of funny. Yeah. Actually, pretty funny. Is uh, that Neil the one Simon. That Warren Beatty. No, never no, it's Jack Lemon and uh, no, I was thinking, I thought Warren Beatty for a funny. second. That's funny. He probably it. he probably got this. No, it's a uh, Goldie Hawn and Steve yeah. Martin remade it. Uh, okay. They probably hired Arthur Hiller based on the Out of Towners because. The Out of Towners is very negative on New York and, and sees it as a cesspool, and these poor young innocents, you know, from mm-hmm. out of from Ohio come. Uh, but they also depict it um, very, very, uh, very negatively. He directed another very keen um, script by Patty Chayefsky, The Americanization of Emily, okay. another movie who, whose attention has been lost. It starred uh, two of the biggest stars in the mid '60s. Um, uh, Julie Andrews and James Garner yeah. and James Coburn thrown in mm-hmm. you know huge stars uh, impressive uh, you know, screenplay was James Coburn ever a huge star I know he won the Oscar for Affliction which is a movie I absolutely adore briefly in the late 60s early 70s um, he, he had I think I think he was a pretty big star okay you know okay but but yeah None of these movies have any particular visual uh, right. appeal, but they have an intelligence after the hospital. Okay. Silver Streak. A silly, you know, uh, Richard Pryor, um, mm-hmm. which Gene Wilder. Yep. I love the movie, but I know what it is. Yeah. Okay. Right. It's, it's a, the in-laws. Okay. The Lonely Guy with Steve Martin, a silly uh, romantic comedy. Um, Outrageous Fortune with Bette Midler and uh, Sh- uh, Sh- uh, Shelley... Um, Shelley Duvall? Uh, no, uh, Shelley... Uh, Winters? No, uh, she was in Cheers. Yeah, Shelley... Uh, Shelley Long. Shelley Long, yeah. yeah. All these movies... So many Shelleys. Arthur Hiller is best when he stays out of the way. And there's two things he had to stay out of the way in this movie. Stay out of the way and, and don't ruin Pajachewski's, uh script. Mm-hmm. And don't, don't interfere with uh, George C. Scott's performance. Yep. Let yep. him go. He probably didn't have to do hardly any directing at all. Yep. Another thing I want to mention, there are an enormous amount of wonderful character actors in this movie, some of whom have tiny little parts. Richard Dysart, who plays the corrupt uh, doctor, mm-hmm. the ultimate corrupt, which, which George C. Scott attacks, physically yeah. attacks. Yeah. He was a doctor in the, the TV series St. Elsewhere. He played the oh. head of the, the, the good, he played the George C. Scott kind of character oh, okay. in St. Elsewhere. Nancy Marchand, uh, uh, the, the, the mother in The Sopranos. 
She's she's a beleaguered. She plays the beleaguered yes. um, head of the, of the nurses. nurses. I yeah. did see her. Yeah, I noticed her. Catherine Hellman, who would make such a big splash on soap, she plays the wife of one of the victims. Um, I love Frances Stern Hagen. She can do anything. Here she plays a prig in from accounting, mm-hmm. who's 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 going around demanding that these poor people in pain show us show us your Blue Cross Blue Shield card. Yeah. And finally, for five seconds, Stocker Channing making her debut. Yes, I did notice Dr. Yeah. Channing as well. And she, it's funny too, because she really does, for a second, she looks completely out of place because she seems so sunny and innocent. Like, what the hell right. is she doing here? Yeah, why isn't she, like, getting pregnant and having an abortion? <laughs> does her character have an abortion in Greece, or I just make that up? No, she, uh, no, she becomes, she thinks she's pregnant, she turns out she isn't. Okay. But, right. in, but in this movie, which is only, you know, seven years before Greece, yeah. she seems like a, a young, innocent kid, and for five, it's, it's an example where you can be on the screen for 60 seconds and make, an, make, an, make a, make a, uh, Yeah, so what was your bad pitch? Bad pitch is, you gotta cross, this is a network crossed with MASH. <laughs> All right. I just thought of one literally right now. I'm gonna do, um, ER cross with Animal House. Okay, all right, yeah, all right. That's it. That's, that's I, all I, like I got. That. Best line, which there is this line that stuck with me for years. He's talking right before you know the rape scene. He he's talking about how how messed up his life is to mm-hmm. this to 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 Diane Rigg character. Yeah. And he's saying, he's talking about how he's estranged from his son, who who has developed hippie values and, yeah. and hated his mother because he she took middle middle class pride in her son. Yeah. And I remember George Scott saying, and when you know when I threw him out, he sat there crying in the rain and screamed at me, "You can't even get it up, can you, old man?" <laughs> and I thought that was a great line because everybody in the middle age, people who are middle aged, think the worst, uh, or, or young people think the worst thing they can say to an older guy like myself, mm-hmm. "You can't get it up." That stuck with me for a long time. It's the basis of uh, Doctor Strangelove. The world ends because a guy, he, he's in That's his late 50s true. and he can't get it up. That's true. That, it, was a, it was a communist plot. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it couldn't be that he's just getting older and losing yeah. virility and he's going to destroy the world for it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, I don't have a best line. I, if I'm going to have a best line, it's going to be the opening narration. Who, which was recorded by Patty Chasky. Oh, really? I did not know that. All I, right. I read up on it. Let's move on. As usual, we're, we're running taking a long. long time. Yeah, as sorry. usually, we're sorry. running long. All right. Yes. So the next movie is Wit. Um, the reason we're following Wit after uh, the hospital is that Wit is one of the most depressing movies you'll ever see. <laughs> it's about this uh, professor of philosophy, although it really seems that she's more a professor of like literature, literature and poetry, yeah. but she says she's a professor of philosophy. But I think she was trained on uh, with literature. She got her, her advanced right. degree on literature. And you essentially, it's, it's based off of a play in, where this woman is essentially dying of cancer in a hospital over, what, like a six-month period. I mean, that's the movie, in a nutshell. Yes. What the movie is about is a lot of things. It's about what is it, what is it like to die of cancer slowly um, in a hospital. How, how do the hospital staff and the doctors treat people? Um, I don't mean actually treat their cancer, although that's also part of it, but how do they actually treat them as human beings? Um, it, it is about, you know, sort of... It's about humanity. It's about how... Does it work? How do we confront what is essentially the darkest truth of life, which is death? And how do we con- do we confront it or do we avoid it? Right? Do we do we face it head on and try and show people some grace, right, and hold their hand in the way through, or do we try and figure out ways of avoiding it? Just just little ways of not 
confronting the reality of it. And they make a big case that that's what the doctors do. This this movie has a brilliant opening scene, which is one of the cringiest opening scenes I've ever seen. And when I say cringy, I don't mean the way it's used today where it's, oh, it's so bad and you can't watch. It's cringy because it starts off, you got this woman played by Emma Thompson, very accomplished, extremely accomplished professor at whatever college it is, I don't know. And she's being told that she has advanced ovarian cancer. Is it ovarian cancer? Oh, um, I think it is. Yeah. yeah. She's being told that she has advanced ovarian cancer by a, a very accomplished doctor named Dr. Kalikian, played by um, Christopher Lloyd of Back to the Future fame. And the way he's saying this to her, he is using... He's trying to describe her cancer as technical and as and as robotic as possible so as to basically not say you are dying. He never once says you are dying and yet he says it in a variety of different ways. And she has to sit there and in order to keep up appearances, in order to um in order to basically seem like a civilized and mature and intelligent woman. She's got to sit there and say, oh, yes, of course. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, oh, yeah. And he's saying things like, do I need to slow down? Can I continue? As he, in the most technical terms possible, tells her that she's dying. And he's like, you're smart, aren't you? So, like, I can continue like this. But it's so obvious that the last thing that this guy wants, the thing he is terrified of, is a human moment with this woman. He in no way does he want to say to her, "I'm sorry, ma'am, you got cancer and we caught it too late, and now you're dying." You know, I'm so sorry for you. It never happens. It is disgusting. He expects her to be as professional as he is. Yeah, <laughs> isn't it awful? The very first frame of this movie, okay, um, it's an out of you can't tell anything. It, it's actually the um, the office. Yeah. Okay. It's out of focus, and and Christopher Lloyd just his. Extreme, uh, very so, such a close-up shot of his face. You don't even see his hairline. He just, his face just jumps into the frame really abruptly, like a like a hammer. And that's, I was wondering why did he do that. Now I think the reason is because that's how he comes off to her. Yeah, you know, he just, he, you know, he 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 dumps all of this horrible, life-changing, you know, information that can't do anything but. It's the most it's the most important moment of her life, probably the most impactful moment of her life, and he's abrupt, and clipped, and sterile, and professional, you yeah. know. And he puts her under enormous pressure. He puts her under enormous. He puts pressure. her under enormous pressure to accept because he keeps he uh, with with a little um, you know appeal to her ego. Yeah, you're strong enough to to, to handle this. Well, he right? also says you're a professor. You're an yeah. intelligent woman, so you'll understand what I'm saying yeah. to you. It's like that could over like that's that overrides not what he's really the saying, moment. though. What he's really saying is that you are white collar. I am white collar. And we can discuss this incredibly tragic matter in the most Protestant, <laughs> detached way possible. With the least amount of humanity, the most buttoned up Yes, ma'am, you have Stage four ovarian cancer. Oh, do I? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, oh, oh, wonderful. You know what I mean? It's just yeah. ridiculous. And, and he wants this because he doesn't want to have to, um, you he know, obviously. He's in his office. It's yeah. so simple. Yeah. Uh, she makes one slight glib remark. Yeah. And, and then he very curtly says, shall I go on? 
Yeah, you he's know? a coward. By like, the way, are, are you done? Are you done with that? Oh, yeah, he's no. a coward. But he, yeah, he's he's despicable too. We we later find out that he's 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 offering the hope her hope mm-hmm. with these new trial drugs. And we find out from the nurse later that they never, they never expected it to work. They just yeah. wanted to find out wh- wh- the impact on her body, which is everybody's terror, everybody's fear. Yeah, he uses her as a human guinea pig to basically write a research paper on the different treatments of cancer. Mm-hmm. He never expects it to cure her, but what he actually wants to know is if he if he does this sort of treatment on a patient, how will the patient's body react? Right. I mean, it's despicable and. Some of the greatest villains you'll ever find in the history of movies are the doctors in this movie. Well, the funny thing is, theoretically, he's not a villain at all. No, of course not. Because this could, he could wind up saving millions of yeah. lives yeah. Um, if some of this works. But that doesn't do her any good. But and, even and if she's he still does, a person, they make it clear that even if he saves millions of lives, he's a cold. Bu- he's a cold bastard, and he's doing it for his own reputation and ego. I mean, mm-hmm. at one point, the one of the few humane characters in the movie who happens to be a nurse, which is a little bit stereotypical and also a little bit not. I am married to a nurse, so mm-hmm. I understand. So you know how warm and That's giving right. and and loving. Yeah, and, I understand know. their great value, but also from a storytelling perspective. I was going to be I was going to be uh sarcastic there, but I thought that's not the right way to go with no, this. <laughs> especially if she listens to this, which she doesn't. Um I I you know, but, I, I'm sure most most yeah. nurses I can't right. I don't know how they do it. But the I point is the nurse says to her, she says, "You know, the doctors just want to keep you alive, but they don't care about like the state your life is in." No. They'll keep they'll keep a body alive regardless if it's you know hooked up to every machine imaginable. They're just about keeping people alive for whatever you know for whatever sake at, at any cost. Um, this is an interesting movie because it's based off a play, and you can very clearly see how this works as a play. Mm-hmm. But I thought it worked as a film, Steve. I really think this did look on a big screen. No, but as a made for HBO movie. Yes. And we have to, you know, we talked about this in our State of Movies podcast, but, you know, things are changing rapidly. We're going to have to start dealing, you know, with the idea of movies just basically coming out on your TV. So I thought if we're going to start doing movies that just come out on our TV and they're going to be treated as movies and they're going to be nominated for Oscars, then this is a good enough one to do. And quite frankly, if this movie came out on Netflix tomorrow, Emma Thompson would probably get nominated for an Oscar. She she is great in this movie. Yeah. Before you go on though, yeah, please. I think there's cinematic technique in this that's easy to overlook. Sure. Okay. Cinematic technique that was not in the hospital. That leads me to a question that involves both movies. How much better would the hospital have been if it had been directed by Mike Nichols? I mean, this guy does absurdity. He did The Graduate, you know, making fun of middle class mores. He he did uh, Catch Twenty Two. This guy was born to do the... He should have directed the hospital. Undoubtedly would have been better. However, he would have interfered... Yeah, well, that's true. That's true, would, too. He, he would have, would have gotten the in the way. He would have had the foresight to eliminate the rape scene. <laughs> uh-huh. He would have had the foresight to do that. He had the taste to do it, yeah. Yep. And he would have... He would not have gotten out of the way. He would yeah, have gone right. in the way. But it would have been a better movie. Yeah. That movie needed someone to get in the way. That movie, <laughs> that movie needed someone to say, hmm, maybe we shouldn't have had our hero rape somebody. <laughs> Chavsky is a pretty powerful direct uh, screenwriter at that point, and you know, it probably wasn't even second-guess him. This movie looks completely different. Yes. It's clean. It's, 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 it's eerily clean. It's sterile. Yes. He's trying to make the hospital system, the hospital setting seem like a sterile place to die, yeah. devoid of humanity, devoid of um, 
you know, any kind of warmth. richness, any richness and warmth. Yeah. Now there are some in this scene. I don't think we see Emma Thompson ever outside the hospital except in flashbacks. That's right. And what's really interesting, something I like that the movie does is there's a great scene where you see the little girl um, version of her talking to her dad. Do you know who played her dad? No, who was that? Harold Pinter, the great the great British uh, writer, oh, uh, play, playwright. Yeah, which is funny because in that scene she's talking about how she, when she knew she wanted to be a writer. Um, yeah, but so what's interesting is that in this scene, first you see a little girl play the role, and they cut away to the father. But then when they cut back uh, to Emma Thompson's character, it is now Emma Thompson playing the little girl more of the cinematic technique that i think you can't get that with a play which i'm sure no but i'm sure that's exactly what they did in the play right where it's oh yeah one she actress, was probably that's right. a good point but yeah. it works the way they did that worked really well and that so like for instance when she's teaching in flashbacks when she's teaching um in class She's bald and in a hospital gown. This works really well for They me. They cut in between. First, yeah. they introduce right. her right. as she was back then. Then they have her, I guess, to bring more immediately, this is why this is relevant to her now. This yeah. is why she's thinking about it. It's great. It's a great idea. So you said when we sort of did a little pre-discussion about this movie that this movie didn't register with you as much. And it didn't me, have the impact, no. For me, it was kind of the opposite, where I felt that this movie was much broader than just being about the hospital system. I thought this movie had a lot to say about life. Like The Hospital, like the yeah. movie The Hospital, which I think he wanted you to extrapolate to, in general, the society is deteriorating. You Can know? I make you angry? I think this movie's better than The Hospital. That doesn't make me angry. Okay. It is. Okay, good. No question about it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's... it. Emma Thompson is a raw nerve in yeah. this movie. Yeah. But and it's a controlled is, one. For the most part. It's got a thin sheet over it. Yes. For the most part, but she achieves a vulnerability at the end yeah. that comes it's, close but yeah. doesn't quite get there to her, her multiple co-star, Anthony Hopkins, in The Father. Okay, but also different because he really got to... He got more than one scene to do that. Well, no, but the, the main scene for him, yeah. the vulnerability, right. the absolute stripping away of anything, there's nothing left but his poor, sorrowful state... I think there's something you know in, in common. So then, why there. didn't it register for you the first time? Well, I was forty. No, I mean this time. This time it did. Oh, it no, it did. registered this time. Oh. It was enormously impactful this time. Okay. When I first saw it, I thought, oh, it's an intelligent, you know, oh, I feel sorry for. Yeah. But I had a distance. Yeah. Which you, being death obsessed, don't. I, <laughs> <laughs> I knew this would hit you when I was watching it, rewatching yeah. it. Yeah. I think, damn. This might hit Sam pretty hard because, you know, death is a huge concern for him, you know? Yeah, I don't want to die, guys. No. Guess what? It's a big <laughs> nothing. There's a point. When you were talking about it a moment, you were talking yeah. about, you were referring to it, it, it about death. Yeah. She has this great scene where uh, she, she's just come back. Uh, she's Her body is racked with pain. It's late in the, in yeah. the movie, and her, her body is racked with pain and the nurse tells her you you need to take these drugs they're they're the only thing that will get you through it and yeah. this is one of my favorite lines she says it you know such a small word it when you think about it what she was referring to is living yeah right the only way she's going to get through the next couple of months even if it's worth getting through you know she's referring to to life is it even worth it you yeah, know? yeah. One of the tragedies in this movie is Doctor Kalikian, who's a cold-blooded bastard, 
is training a bunch of doctors. He's growing one. <laughs> and he's growing them. Yeah. Like in a laboratory, how <laughs> the only way we will get doctors who have some who have some sense of the human spirit is if we train them as such, if we if we show them a model that cares and not one that views people as like that deliberately puts people at a distance. I mean, at one point, his protege, who happened to be a former student of hers, says, oh, you got to take a class on bedside manner, a total waste of time. Like, he is... It's sad to watch this young guy. You just Mm. know, in terms of the human spirit, he's going down the wrong road. Career-wise, he might be going down a great road. In terms of being a person, he's going down a horrible road. And it's all because he doesn't have a mentor to show him the right road. Yeah, There are a couple of glimmers where you might think he sympathizes. He's never. By the end of the scene... It's 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 chilling how how he just brushes off her her agony and her concerns. Yeah, yeah. It's it's just. I mean, at one point he's discussing his fascination with cancer and he's gleeful about it. Meanwhile, he's talking to a woman who's dying of cancer. Yeah. It shows. So it's funny too because he was a student of hers. Yeah, and he could have preached. Uh, she she taught him about uh, the um, the poet. I think it was Robert Dunn who wrote "Death Be Not Proud." Yeah. And he seems to get a lot of it, yeah. right? He seems to understand it, so he's got an art, kind of an artistic side, and yet he's just so purely analytical. He dismisses. He doesn't dismiss it. He appreciates it as, be, as the poem as being a puzzle. Yeah. Where to the to the um, to to Emma um, Thompson, it's the whole key to, to life. Right. And one of the interesting things about Emma Thompson is that her character is very much like one of these doctors as a professor. She's extremely cold. Um, in many in many ways, it, almost the wrong person to teach the material that she teaches because mm-hmm. she seems to have no understanding of life. Um, one of the big things in this movie is that nobody comes to visit her. One of the nurses remarks on it, you don't have any visitors. You get the sense she doesn't have any friends or family, that her mm-hmm. life has been so purely spent as an academic, she hasn't spent it forging relationships. And not only that, she seems to dislike people. At one point in the movie, you know, she has this policy that she'll never extend a deadline for any kind of assignment or paper. And one of her students comes up to her and he goes, I'm so sorry, I have to ask for an extension. And she goes, oh, what, your grandma died? And he goes, oh, you knew? Like, how did you know? She's like, just a guess. She's like, well, the answer is no, you can't have an extension. And he says, okay, and he just walks away. Um, And the idea basically is that in many ways, she learned. First of all, she's extremely ashamed of this in the movie. When she's reminiscing on this, she has to think maybe there's just a touch of that doctor, yeah. the cold-blooded, uh, intolerant doctor, in me. Yeah, no, she feels great shame mm. as she's recollecting on it. Mm. Um, but the other thing, you know, that's interesting, right? So, is in many ways, she learns about living in life through dying through getting the cancer. And the only thing that makes me kind of sad is you almost wish the movie was about a doctor who got diagnosed, like like Kalikian. <laughs> Imagine the movie was about Kalikian. Imagine he's giving the diagnosis <laughs> to somebody, and then he goes to see his... Imagine the first scene is he's giving the diagnosis to some woman, and then the next scene is he goes to his doctor and learns he has cancer. They have already made that movie. Oh, really? Which one is it? It's called... Uh, it's one, It's on the list of movies we could have done. Okay. That, that I, I can save to, to the end, but if you're... There's a movie, a, a terrific movie, a very life-affirming movie, actually, called The Doctor with William Hurt. And he mm. plays a cold-blooded, 
a brilliant surgeon, yeah. but very cold-blooded. Then he gets esophageal cancer. He gets put through it. It. I think you'd love this movie. I okay. think you'd love The Doctor. It's going to be a while before I watch another hospital movie. <laughs> you know, it's not a... There's a reason they don't make too many of them. It's amazing they <laughs> yeah, ever I don't got think any ER. of them... It's amazing they ever got ER off the ground. It's amazing <laughs> so many TV shows take place in hospitals. People love... Well, it, it, it's, it's, it's like a cop show. It accelerates human drama. Of course, you know that. Yeah. But... Uh, Maybe it's also the part of the horror, you know? Like, you know, we, we go to see horror movies. We don't want to get butchered by Jason, but we can still go see them. Yeah. Maybe it's just, the, you know, trying to put the, the fear at bay. But Emma Thompson, is, she is a very unique person. They decided to use a highly educated, very articulate person. Mm-hmm. They could have done a, an average, average Susie, right? Like an Olivia Coleman. Right. Just, oh, absolutely. I was, I was just trying to put you in a position where you had to call Olivia Coleman an average Susie. But yes, Olivia Coleman can probably do Cockney better than Emma Thompson could. Like, for instance, if you're doing a Shakespeare play, right? Olivia Coleman is the tavern wench, and Emma Thompson is like the upper class noble in disguise going to visit the tavern. I would have said that, but you know, the last five or six years. She, uh, Olivia Coleman's been knocking it out of the park. No, I love Olivia Coleman. I'm she saying is that, just knocking it out of the park. Yeah, no, Olivia Coleman's one of my favorite actresses on mm. earth. What I'm saying is that Olivia Coleman can do both. She can play. Yes, yes. She can play austere, I guess is the word. Okay. But she can also. Is austere the word? I, I think so. Yeah. I think but so. she can also play your tavern wench. Yeah. Right? That's the point. It, do you remember her? She was in, um, oh, that, that fantastic uh, uh, movie, um, uh, Hot Fuzz. Oh, was she in that? She's she's the woman cop, and she's she's game. She's game for oh, comedy. Oh, she started out in comedy. Yeah. No, she started oh, out I can in see comedy. It. So did Emma Thompson, actually. Oh, she really? started out in comedy, too. I thought she started out as Kenneth Branagh's muse. <laughs> uh, you know, was, Wasn't that the thing? She, you know, you, you can have a uh, you know, side gig. <laughs> anyway. Uh, <laughs> well, in many ways. She, I'm sure she was a Shakespearean well, trained actor. Tur- I'm sure they yeah. both were, but well, they, they, they excelled Thompson in comedy. Emma turned out to be the genius in the partnership. The second those two split up, uh-huh. she went on to do great work, and he didn't do anything. Well, I wouldn't say anything. What did he do? What, what was that movie he Marvel came movies? out last? What, the movie he came out last year. That movie year. stinks. Belfast. It has flaws. That movie stinks. It has flaws. Ugh. It has. Anyway, uh, get, get, yeah. getting back, I was really impressed. It blew me away, probably because I'm I'm 20 years down the road, yeah. uh, watching this, watching a person who has all the uh, mental resources to deal with it, yeah, you know, yeah, and seeing how punny those resources are, they yeah. don't stu- they don't hold up. Yeah. So let's talk about some, right? So I'm gonna, I'm gonna give it away. Giving giving it away. Emma Thompson dies. This movie ends with her dying of cancer, as it was always going to end. I mean, that was kind of the whole point. But the last scene is that Emma Thompson's mentor comes to find her. And she and as Emma Thompson's basically dying, she reads Emma Thompson, Emma Thompson's favorite book from when she was a child. Now the mentor yeah. was as tough a professor as she was. That's right. They have a scene with her talking with her mentor and yeah. she is hard as nails. Yeah. But she she you know, she's she's funny and obviously has a heart. But I'm sorry. No, so so the question is, how did she know that Emma Thompson was in the hospital? I don't. I don't remember that. That there's was a, a plot dream, point. There's a dream like she went to go to see somebody. I think she went to go see somebody at her office, and they Is told that me that. Yeah, yeah. There's a dream like. In some ways, I almost wish it wasn't literal. Uh-huh. In some ways, I wish it almost didn't happen, and that it just happened in her mind. Because um, it would it would make it you know just very interesting that 
she's she's searching her mind for the one person to comfort her in her dying moments, and it happens to be her literary mentor, and not a family member or a friend. So that would speak. be unbearably sad if it weren't real. It would be unbearably sad, which the movie already is. But. Yeah, but it would be kind of the point. Um, I think this movie is a much more realistic depiction of going through that type of experience in the hospital than any other thing I've ever seen. Mm. Um, I have a friend. He's a He works in a hospital. He's a doctor. He once told me, he said, never let your loved ones die in a hospital. He said, it's the worst place to die. He said, if they're mm. going to die, they're going to die anyways. But don't let them die in a hospital. Anywhere but a hospital. I, I think there's a, I think the, the hospice move it, movement probably born out of that. Who, who the hell wants to die? You know, in, in, in the sterility, and the odds are your, your your loved ones won't be around. Yeah. So next question: Did she have it coming? Did she have it coming? <laughs> <laughs> no, I was just kidding. <laughs> she had it coming, right? <laughs> Here's a question. Yeah. Why wit? Why did I choose? Why it? is the title? Why is the title wit? Because she always has it. She has it, but you can't blow it end. off. I don't want to get into this uh, this cliche. Well, she uses wit to deal with the. No, uh, no. She uses wit to describe yeah. uh, what what's going through. You know, but so she can't. She she yeah. doesn't use it to to get through it because she, there's no getting through it. I disagree. She does use it to get through it in the sense that it's her doctor language speak. Instead of saying the bare faced truth of what is happening. And I do this too. Most people do this. She puts little twists on it to make it easier to say out loud. Like Now, is that for our benefit or for the the audience's benefit no, for or the characters? Or maybe both. It's for hers. And I mean every time I do it, it's for my benefit. Whenever, you know, a lot of times I'll say something about something pretty tragic in my own life, people will be like, gosh, like how can you it's because he just put a little wit on it. Yeah. He put a little. He put a little. Little. Um. Yeah. Wit on it. it. It makes it easier to say. If that is true, then I would like to recite the best line, which is actually multiple lines, Please. where the wit fails. And although right. there is wit in the right. line, it, it it fails, and it's desperately sad. Uh, she's just had the, the a bunch of excruciating tests, mm-hmm. and she's being brought back into her into her um her room. And she's talking to the audience. My next line is supposed to be something like, it's such a relief to get back to my room after those infernal tests. This is hardly true. It would be a relief to be a cheerleader on her way to Daytona Beach for spring break. Right. To get back to my room after those infernal tests is just the next thing that happens. Yeah. Boom. Even her wit can't save her from her desperate situation, you know? Yeah, 100%. And, you know, everyone in this movie is avoiding saying the barefaced truth mm-hmm. at all times. I mean, that's the thing. Only a few people are willing to confront it, which is the nurse. The nurse is always trying to very gently push Emma Thompson into confronting realities that she doesn't want to confront, whether it be about her treatment itself or what does she want to do if her heart stops beating? Right, they do not resuscitate, yeah. But Emma Thompson and the doctors throughout the entire movie want to do everything except just say everything as it is flatly. And when Emma Thompson finally lets go, that's the, that is the release of, tri- of all that wit, quite frankly. I mean, in many ways, you could describe what the doctor is doing in the beginning of the film, clicking as wit. 
It is the idea of putting a twist on something so that it's more bearable. But it doesn't actually make it more bearable. It's just the coward's avoidance. That's all it is. There's so Mm. much... In many ways, they could have called this movie Avoidance. I mean, what's a better better title? But a lot of it is about people avoiding coming to hard realities, hard epiphanies. Yeah, I, I definitely buy that. This movie is it's tough to take. Yeah, absolutely. Because it, it, it keeps stripping away, you know, and yeah. getting to the, the, those hard realities. It's long. It's like, you know, I was watching uh, The Iceman Cometh the uh-huh. other day, which you've never seen. But The Iceman Cometh is like literally about looking into the void uh-huh. of existence and it goes on for four hours. <laughs> you, should, you should never have seen that movie. I, I think it's 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 completely uh, it's going to ruin the second half of your life. Uh, <laughs> this movie's actually only I, I have actually stats here, but I, I given the gravity of the um, the it's subject over two matter, hours, though, isn't it? it's it's only a minute thir- uh, an hour thirty nine. Really? Yeah. Jeez, it felt like three forty nine. Well, you, you feel you know when never goes anywhere. There's not a lot I mean, of dramatic release. There's not a lot of dramatic release no. in, in this movie. You're watching you know? a woman narrate to you, um, you know, the the pain of, of dying of cancer. Mm. This would have been a fantastic thing to see on stage. Yes. This would have been a really interesting thing to see. Speaking of which, the woman who wrote it is a woman named Margaret Edson. Mm-hmm. Okay? Before she wrote this, she was a, uh elementary school teacher. Okay. She won the Pulitzer Prize for this. As she should. Good yes. for her. She went back to being an elementary school teacher after this, okay. and she never wrote another play. To this day, she's still a sixth grade uh, teacher. Good for her. I love that. It doesn't seem like this type of person would have just let it go at one. You know? But you know what? That is the most honorable thing she could have done wow. for the world. <laughs> Make one grand work of art that says something about the human condition, and then go serve humanity. I mean, that in many ways is more honorable than constantly creating art where you're trying to say multiple things about the human condition or not, or like just, I don't know, I, I can't imagine she would have written a Marvel movie. No, I But like, <laughs> the, I, I actually find it to be more romantic in my mind when someone makes one great work of art and never does anything again. I always like that. Like uh, the, the, the author of To Kill a Mockingbird, you know. Yeah, yeah, sure. She only wrote Lee Harper only wrote one. Well, she she wrote she wrote another book that came out like sixty years later. You gotcha. Know? I, I don't think she you know. I like the idea of any person has it in them to contribute one great statement on the human condition, mm-hmm. because generally when someone makes a lot of things, what that makes them is a trained professional, right? It makes them an experienced craftsman and it puts them out of the rel it puts them in a league that you can't touch as an ordinary individual but i like the idea that everyone if they really buckle down has something to say and potentially has some greatness in them something i find that art in general i mean my criteria for art has always been in order for it to be art it has to say something about the human condition that's it i mean we're all living a life right we we all live our own lives and but at the same time, our lives are easily comparable. We can identify with each other, right? Mm-hmm. So to me, a Marvel movie, that's not art. That's just entertainment. Art's got to say something about the human condition. So the idea of this woman creates something monumental and then goes and teaches, <laughs> she's serving us in two different ways. She's yeah. making a statement, and then she's doing action. 
because the artist is not an active person. The artist is inactive. They are by nature an observer. In, by know? nature an observer. Yeah. And this woman observed and then did. I mean, yeah. good for her. So let's not let's not re let's not research this because I'd hate to think that what I read was wrong and and you know <laughs> let, let's just keep it at this. Like yeah. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna research anymore because maybe what I read let's was not uh, find uh, out yes. that she's been running around Hollywood uh, trying to get the, you know trying pitching to, a sitcom <laughs> pitching some like IP you know she's trying to get the next Ender's Game movie made. <laughs> Oh, I, 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 we should just sit it there and and lady if uh, uh, Miss Edson if you if you did do that don't don't let anybody know yeah okay. it would be terrible if she went back to teaching because <laughs> she couldn't get anything else made hopefully that's not the case you know some Lord of the Rings spinoff <laughs> yeah I mean wit I'm glad I I you know it always stuck with me I saw it in college mm-hmm. um, on HBO on demand didn't know what I was in for appreciate it more this time but the thing about wit is it always stuck with me. They just it went places that so few works of art are willing to go. It really cuz I think staring death in the face that is the thing man that like and that's what actually um the Iceman cometh is about. Mm-hmm. The Iceman cometh is about is about how you cannot stare it in the face. And in fact, if you stare it in the face, it is so paralyzing that you cannot get through life. And that the only way to get through life is to not look at it, is to not stare its meaninglessness in the face. Because the whole idea of Dice Man Cometh is there's this um, tavern of drunks, right? There's no way to put them. They're drunks and they're losers. And they're looking forward to the one guy who's not a loser, uh, who's a salesman named Hickey, coming to their bar. He comes like whenever he's in town, which is like twice a year. And he's the life of the party, but he's also a success. And he comes to the bar this one time, and he's and he stopped drinking. They can't believe it. They were so looking forward to getting drunk with him. But now as he stopped drinking, he tells them that he's here to save them. He's here to save them from, th- from something he calls pipe dreams. Because every one of them has a pipe dream. Every one of them has something that they aspire to and they think they're going to accomplish. And he's telling them that none of you will ever accomplish any of it. That it's all meaningless. All of you know you will not accomplish it. And he goes, and if you, if you realize that, you will be free. And you can actually live a better life. And as he tells them all this over the course of four hours, he makes them all um, increasingly more miserable, right? <laughs> and more and, and, and just more depressed. That's what I would have guessed. Right. <laughs> yeah. But then they find out at the very end of the play that in fact he's on the run for murdering his wife. He's actually killed his wife. And by the time the cops come to arrest him, they all look at each other and they go, oh, he was insane. <laughs> oh, and they all... They all latch back onto their pipe dreams. That Hickey was actually right about one thing they were never going to accomplish, hmm. right? But it's those dreams. Those dreams can be pacifiers, too. Yeah, yeah. well, that's, that is what they are. The hmm. author is not saying that they're going to accomplish their dreams. Eugene hmm. O'Neill, the greatest talking plays here, the greatest playwright in American history, without question. Absolutely. I've, you know, I, the, uh, the greatest play I've ever seen, I haven't seen that one. Are you talking about Long Day's Journey? Well, yeah, it's, yeah. it's the greatest play, and you say this is even better. No, no, uh, they're different. They're different, okay. I, I'm trying to think of comparisons. Long Day's Journey is personal, and, and Iceman Cometh is cerebral, hmm. right? Does that make sense? Yeah. One is an exposed, beating heart, and the other is a very intellectual um, exercise. And you would put wit with the intellectual exercise? No, both. Oh. It me- it actually manages both. It melds both. both. But the point is, um, you know, the idea about looking into the void is 
Eugene O'Neill doesn't think the, his bar tavern, his tavern characters are ever going to accomplish anything, but they've got to have something so they're not looking into the void. And Wit is a movie where she's, everyone is trying to not look into that void, and then at some point she's got to do it. She's got to do it to actually free herself. It's, in some ways, it's the reverse. It's the idea that you have to at least acknowledge what's about to happen and prepare for it. It's very interesting. Well, the, the, the poem that they talk about assumes an afterlife and mm-hmm. therefore is very comforting. Death be not proud because before you, there's mm-hmm. life. Yeah. After you, there's afterlife and you're only just this little blip. Mm-hmm. And that's, I don't see her taking a lot of comfort from that. No. <laughs> Let me tell you something, by the way. She should not feel so proud to teach whatever the hell it is that she teaches. It is so niche. It's so niche. <laughs> she talks about like how she's greatly um, contributed to like the academic understanding of whatever the hell it is. What's his name? Is Robert Durst? No, no. no. Um, Excuse me, everybody. I believe Robert Durst is the lead singer the guy who of killed Limp his wife. Yeah. <laughs> no, or oh, is Robert just the guy who killed his wife? Isn't it? Fred, excuse me, Fred Durst is the lead singer of Limp Bizkit, uh-huh. and Robert Durst is the man who killed his wife. Some Durst. All I know is I'm yeah. not a Durst, okay? Yeah. I, I forget I, I forget who the, uh, the poet it is. is. It's like, yeah. does there really need to be an entire class? Does someone, should someone get paid to, like, dissecting <laughs> the poems of some obscure author? Maybe it's, it was a swell, maybe it was a swell, uh... Uh, a swell poem. Have you, had you heard of the poem before that? Death no, I, I never even heard of the guy that she oh. studies. I didn't know the name, but I had heard of the poem before. I think, isn't Long Day's Journey and Tonight the name of a poem? I don't no, know. No, what's the one, Do Not Go Cruelly Into That Gentle oh, Night? Which yeah. one is that? No, that yeah, that that is some sort of a poem, which is... That's yeah. the only one I know about death. Or do, about do Not Go... The Dying of the do not Light. Go, yeah, The Dying of the Light. Do, do not, not Go Quietly Into That. Yeah, thing. that's yeah. that's the one I know. Like that. Yeah. And that guy's I hate saying, poetry. Absolutely hate poetry. Me too. That guy's saying rage <laughs> against it. That guy's rage saying, against that the guy's dying actually, of the light. That guy's yes. actually saying, do whatever you can not to die. Yes. <laughs> you know, his... Uh, or the very least, you know, even even if you know that you're going to die, you know, just keep, you know... Yeah. If, if if I had if I were in Emma Thompson's position, I, I would say you know I would book a skydiving, uh, you know, a session without a parachute. Yeah, because I'd like to see what it's like, you know. And boom, I, I don't need to I don't need to be in this cold, sterile, right, impersonal uh, hospital room and just die and ready to get get dissected. No, I, I'm going to pitch out and see what the Grand Canyon looks like up close. I got another good one for you. My wife told me this. She loves this story about this woman got some sort of similar news. I don't, it might have been cancer, but I, don't, I, I think it was not even cancer. She was just so old. She didn't have much time left. And instead of going to assisted living or hospice or anything, she just, she just kept buying cruise tickets. She just spent the oh. rest of her life on cruises. Wow. One day they just found her dead body on the cruise. That that's great. Now, unfortunately for Emma Thompson, not only she has to face um, you know death, she also has to face agony. Well, but that treatment a big. That's a but big. But the treatment was putting her through worse agony. Yeah, she might have actually died more comfortably, but sooner yeah. if she hadn't gotten the treatment. Right. I mean, that's the big. thing. These doctors are such villains. I mean, they just use her as a science experiment. They have absolutely no know. empathy for her. Whatsoever. Yeah. yeah. All right, see. Yeah, please. I do want to go over some of the movies that I thought we could have done. Uh, I'm not saying that they're they're necessarily better, but if you want to see some interesting uh, 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 hospital movies, The Doctor with William Hurt. Yep. Very, very, very good movie. Um, uh, also, um, 
Whose Life Is It Anyway with Richard Dreyfuss. That movie is very much uh, like Wit, only it's life-affirming. Is that where they got Whose Line Is It Anyways? I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> it's about a, a Richard Dreyfuss plays somebody who's, and it's also based on an acclaimed play okay. about a man who's trying to end his life. He he he's an artist and he's gotten paralyzed from I know the head what this down. Is. I know what this is. It's it's an excellent movie, yeah. and I, I assume that the play was very good too. Yeah. There's also this uh, there's another thriller with Gene Hackman and Hugh Grant called I think it's called Extreme Measures. That's good. That is a good movie. Cool. Especially the ending. Now, the ending has this... It's not great writing, but I love it when uh, when somebody can make his moral stand yeah. at the end of a movie, when you're supposed to in a thriller, yeah. and articulate it so well. And Hugh Grant does this. He's terrific in it, yeah. and Gene Hackman is excellent, too. I have a good story about Coma. that movie. Coma. Uh, that's another one. Coma. Well, I'm, I'm going to tell my Extreme Measure story. Okay. When I was a kid... I went to Cape Cod every summer, and there was this little, like, convenience store that had fresh bagels. And my parents sent me to go to this convenience store to get fresh bagels, but they also mm-hmm. had a little videotape library. You could rent tapes at this place. And I rented Extreme Measures. Like, I got, I was, like, 11 years old, 10 years old, and the teenage kids, like, you can have this R-rated movie, whatever, kid. <laughs> and I took the bagels and this uh, this this videotape back to my, my parents' house that they had in Cape Cod, and they made me take the movie back. They said it was Aww. too scary. I wasn't allowed to watch it. So to this day, I've never seen Extreme Measures. But I tried, <laughs> Steve. I did try. It's a good, solid, fairly conventional thriller. But it also explores, um, you know, the met, uh, um, you know, doctor's responsibility and how far you're allowed to go with research, like this, like the uh, the Christopher Lloyd character. Yeah. You know, how how far is it ethical? Does ethically can you does go? Dead Ringers count? Even though we've already done it, we did it. No. Because it's not really in a hospital; it's more like a doctor's office, you know. And that's it's it's just a horror show. But coma, yep. coma was a breakthrough. It was it, it came out like a year before Aliens. Yeah. Uh, uh, Bougeot plays one of the one of the strongest uh, char- uh, female characters in an action thriller. You know, uh, Ripley would yeah. be a, gr- a greater character the next year. But this is really good, and and she's smart and she's intelligent. And she figures out the plot. And this movie also will make you terrified to go to the uh, distrust doctors even more than you do now. And let me guess your next one. Patch Adams. I No, that was my bad pitch for Wit. Oh, really? Patch Adams meets the father. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's about as bad a pitch as you can get. No, I've yeah, never seen no, Patch Adams. I have no, no desire to see it. But those four movies are they are well-made, well-crafted, and intelligent. And they explore the, the, the moral side but they can't touch uh, wit, and they're not even in the same class as the hospital. But I really like they're they're a lot more entertaining and more upbeat conventionally. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you actually did like wit. I misunderstood you before. I thought you were saying you didn't that it didn't register with you this time. The first time it, it right. Well, I mean, I appreciate. It. I, I remember yeah. it being oh, yeah, it's a pretty quality movie. Yeah. Okay, not bad, right. but forgettable. It it stuck with me this time. Well, ever since you found out you had a little basal cell carcinoma on your head, <laughs> everything's changed for you. Steve is bald, if you guys don't know, and I tell him he needs to wear a hat every day in the summer. Every single day. He should be a hat guy. He should have a whole collection of hats. And I literally did find carcinoma on the top of my head. I know he did. And, That's uh, why I said side. it. Yes. That's what I'm saying. He needs to be a hat guy. The second you, I go bald, Steve, uh-huh. I'm just going to be a hat guy. I'm going to be the guy that everyone's going to be like, man, that guy's got a different hat for every day of the week. <laughs> That's going to be my thing. I do wear hats a lot. Um, I, I, 
I, I stay see, out of the sun. I want to see you putting on hats when you go from your car to work and when you go from work to your car. Anything to keep the doctors at bay, especially the hacks in these two movies. Yeah. All right, so I think we've explored everything. Uh, guys, thanks for pushing through. You know, it's, I think it's like we all were dying of cancer on this podcast. You know, it was my idea to do hospital movies. Uh, I don't think we'll do that again. Um, but, you know, every once in a while, you got to pick something that just people don't think about. And hospital isn't really a genre, but it kind of is. It's definitely a TV genre, but nobody considers it a movie genre. That's true. It's it, it, it's not frequent. Anytime you see a doctor in a movie, it, it's it's incidental. Like in a yeah. romantic comedy, you have a, you have a the, yeah. the cute doctor or something like that. Yeah. I'm never going to promise to do an episode again that's more uplifting, because I don't believe in that. <laughs> but maybe not as as terribly bleak. All right, Steve, this was a good one. Until next time. Oh.